Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee, and in this episode we go back to 1907, the 11th season of the VFL, where Carlton would be looking to build on their success of their first VFL Premiership, Fitzroy would be looking to redeem their status as the powerhouse club of the league, and the six other clubs would be looking to make their bid for glory. 1907 saw some developments that would become part of our everyday lives. In May, the merger of six Melbourne-based breweries led to the formation of Carlton and United Breweries, who would be the sponsors of the league and many clubs over the years, and many supporters would drink some of their products at games as well. There was also the first telephone connections between Melbourne and Sydney, as technology began to play its part in connecting the states. The VFL were also making changes to their rules. The challenge option was updated so that the minor premiums would be defined at the end of the sectional rounds. The results of the semi-final, or final, would not alter the status of the team that had won the right to challenge by topping the ladder after the home and away games and the sectional rounds. Also, the semi-finals would now be played on separate Saturdays, allowing for bigger crowds and a bigger gate-taking, with both games being played at the MCG. The match between second and fourth clubs to be played on the first weekend, and the first and third clubs to be played on the second weekend of the semi-finals. Hence, why we refer to first and second semi-finals. In March, Mr Henry Harrison, co-founder of Australian Rules and vice-president of the VFL, was speaking at a dinner put on by the Wednesday Football League. There were two points of interest. The first, in what many people would consider a breach of league policy over many seasons, was the confession by Mr Henry Harrison that the league had made mistakes in the past and that they were only human. Clearly, this precedent has not become established, and I'm not sure how many more times we will hear the League admitting to making mistakes in future episodes, but I will try and keep track. The other news at the dinner was much more aligned with League policy over many years, building up enthusiasm for the international expansion of Australian rules. Henry Harrison said copies of the rules had been sent to the President of the United States and all the leading colleges in North America, with the result that replies favourable to the introduction of the game, had been received. As well, there was news of the formation of clubs in Canada, South Africa and London. Now, while I may be a bit sceptical, given similar news had been reported in previous years, including the 1904 annual report, this time Mr Harrison had some independent support. The London Daily Mail was quoted in support of the Australian game. It said, If Australia wishes to do some real good for English sport, she should rather send two teams of men who play the Australian game, which, in the opinion of many English and American players, as well as by the far greater majority of Australians, is the fastest, prettiest, most scientific and least brutal of all varieties of football. It would be no exaggeration to say that after such a visit, there would be more teams playing the Australian game in a very short time than those playing the rugby code at present. Not sure if that was an Australian journalist or an English journalist writing for the Daily Mail. But international expansion is clearly still a work in progress. If you're under the impression that crime and fraud is something that is a problem of modern times, I can assure you that the League had to address these problems in its early years too. 1907 saw the introduction of new membership cards that had the season fixture printed on them and could be clipped at the gatekeeper when entering the game. The previous system of different slips of coloured paper had proven easy to substitute in the rush to get through the gates at a game. Over at the VFA, trouble was brewing 
because the VFA had decided that it would no longer allow clubs to play practice matches against the league teams, with the threat of suspending any offending VFA clubs. The VFA thought the league would take any opportunity to stop them making progress, as evidenced in the previous season, by the VFL rearranging their fixture to put an important game on as the same day as the association's state game against South Australia. However, Richmond had already planned such practice matches, and they pointed out that they made much more money from a practice game against a league team than they did in a normal game against the VFA side, as well as the benefit of competing against the best clubs to improve their performance. A compromise was arranged between the VFA and Richmond, where four of the five planned games against league teams were cancelled, but a match against Geelong could proceed, Geelong having already arranged for a special train to travel up to Punt Road. While the immediate threat to the VFA was addressed, the Richmond Football Club would soon be making its move the following season. One potentially significant update from the league's AGM was the news that the league's finance committee had been expanded from three to eight and that they had the right to see and examine whenever they chose the accounts and vouchers of any club. Every club was now represented on the committee, which should have provided opportunity for scrutiny. But Markwell wrote, Given the persistent rumours about players getting paid, the club delegates to the league must know of it, and the new finance committee, with all its increased powers, is the hollowest of shams. The issue of professionalism was to surface again before the season start. The permits committee had the responsibility of deciding if a player could transfer between clubs, and was seen as one of the barriers to players moving clubs for the sole reason of getting paid. If the committee blocked the move, the player could be out of the game for three years. Melbourne had decided to get a coach to help them climb up the ladder, but their candidate, Bill Monagle, was not permitted to have any role at the club. It was alleged in 1904 and 1905 that he was a professional. The allegation was that he had asked Essendon for £50 to play for them, and he was refused a permit to play. Because of that earlier finding, he was not allowed to coach for Melbourne. Even though he'd given up a business in Northcote on securing the position, he had also married. There was talk of getting barristers to challenge the league in court, as this was an infringement of the rights of private individuals. But Monagle was not keen on taking action, and the Melbourne Football Club was not willing to push the issue, so nothing came of it. But he did not get the job he was promised, and Melbourne were without a coach. Follow-up, and the leader was not happy calling the attempts to convince the public that the game was legitimately an amateur sport, had gone too far to be tolerated. In Bill Monagle's case, he was without a job as Melbourne had terminated his position as groundkeeper, now that he could not be the team's coach. Follower wondered what would happen if each club's delegate had to swear a statutory oath that none of their players were getting paid for their services. The tension regarding player payments and the faux amateurism was clearly growing. The season opened on Saturday, April 27, a week earlier than usual. This was not a good thing, according to follower writing in the leader. The legitimate opening day for the season should have been the first Saturday in May. The footballers were beginning to impose themselves on the cricket season. There are even suggestions that each game should be allowed six months a year. But, according to follower, this would be absurd. To assimilate an Australian summer and winter in length of duration is to go against all laws of nature. And a well-appointed cricket ground should have a month of recuperation between the close of the football season and the start of the cricket season. 
His article pointed out that footballers had done well in their five months of football and seven for cricket, and he was reminiscing of the days when footballers paid for their own boots and cab fares to the game, and the players of today should let well enough be alone and not try and spoil things. The money generated by football was beginning to tell in the allocation of playing time on the grounds shared between cricket and football clubs. Follower also made note again of the double dealing of officials and players when it came to so-called amateurism. Follower had no problem with professional sportsmen being paid. This was common in cricket, but bemoaned the meanness of a chap who posed as an amateur while sneaking his hand out for payment. And the club officials were complicit too. Better for it to be open and acknowledged. In his preview of the teams, there was some optimism for South Melbourne, some hope for St Kilda, and the recognition of the enthusiasm for each of the other clubs, but also a clear recognition that Carlton, having retained all of its players and possibly picking up some new talent, would be the team to beat this year. Markwell, writing in the Australasian, was also positive about St Kilda's prospects, giving the results of their recruiting drive. He also thought South Melbourne would do well, as no pain was being spared by their president, Henry Hawkins Skinner, and his enthusiastic co-workers. Markwell, though, also thought Carlton would again prove formidable. Markwell was also not happy about the league starting a week earlier, but for different reasons to observer. He was concerned about the well-being of the players and their ability to stand up to the rigours of additional training and a longer season. He felt the league should have more consideration for the young men playing the game. Kikoro of the Herald provides a good example of how we always think that we are busy people and things used to be more relaxed in the past. He wrote about the carrot hustle and bustle and how everyday business was requiring hurry-scurry. So perhaps this is why a football game that is fast and bustling was more popular than cricket. The opening round saw St Kilda playing Carlton at Princes Park. The Friday Herald advised players to be at the Corner Hotel St Kilda promptly at 1.30 to catch the drag, which is a horse-drawn carriage, or at the Melbourne Town Hall at 2pm sharp. Travelling by car had yet to establish itself. Carlton had the honour of unfurling their premiership flag when hosting St Kilda, but rather than celebrating the occasion with a win, the Blues and the rest of the football world were stunned when St Kilda won by four goals. The perennial cellar dwellers got their season off to a flying start by winning their first six games. The other shock in the opening round were the new uniforms worn by the Collingwood Football Club. Loose shorts, bare knees and black socks with a broad white band at the top. The VFL players' shorts had begun to reduce from long knickerbockers to something more useful when playing a fast, hustle-bustle game. Perhaps the final endpoint of this evolution were the tight, 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 tight shorts worn by Warwick Kappa in the mid to late 80s, before the trend back to the slightly looser shorts common today. But now you know, it was Collingwood in 1907 that were the starting point in the evolution of short shorts. Round two saw Carlton threatened with a fine for their late start against Geelong, but it was pointed out by Jack Worrell at the league delegates meeting that the special train taking the team to the Corio Oval was late. The fine was rescinded and the league would write to the railway commissioners, urging them to increase the speed of the special football train in the interests of football. And if you are wondering, Frank Worrell was simultaneously Carlton secretary, coach and league delegate. An efficient use of resources or an excessive concentration of power in one man? You be the judge. At the start of round seven, it was the Saints on top of the ladder, two games clear of Carlton and South Melbourne, 
with everyone else on two wins only. That was a high point for the Saints. They only won one more game in the home and away season, but managed to stay in the top four. After 14 rounds, Carlton had gained the top spot, and Collingwood was second. South had also improved on the previous year, making it to third. The sectional rounds saw a change in the order of the top four, but no team was displaced. However, Collingwood did their best to let another team in, with a stunning form reversal in the latter part of the season. Having won eight out of their first 12 games, they lost four of their last five matches, including all three sectional games. This included a 40-point loss to St Kilda, a 50-point loss to Fitzroy, and just a 5-point loss to Geelong. However, they had been 38 points in front of Geelong at three-quarter time, and they were playing at Victoria Park. Although not as bad as Essendon the year before, who lost five games in a row before making it to the semi-finals, it was still a sad and sorry way to make it into a semi-final. The semi-finalists were confirmed, and this year they would be played on separate weekends. The first semi-final between second-place South Melbourne and fourth-place Collingwood, and the second semi-final would be the following Saturday between the top-place Carlton and third-place St Kilda, who would be playing in their first-ever VFL semi-final. The league had continued with the innovation of charging a shilling for entry into the ground versus the sixpence for a normal home-and-away game, that is, doubling the price and an extra shilling for the grandstand. This, combined with scheduling the games over two weekends to allow for bigger crowds at each game, did lead to criticism and allegations of gouging the supporters. At a smoke night for the Metropolitan Football Association, Mr T. Coleman offered some friendly criticism for the VFL, including a call for barring club secretaries from the governing body. He called out the effective conflict of interest between managing a club and managing the league. There were plenty of good sportsmen, unhampered by club interests, who could manage the game. In effect, a very early call for the Independent Commission to administer the game in Victoria. It would take another 80 years for that prescient observation to be implemented. The first semi-final was on Saturday the 12th of September, and there was a curtain raiser between representative state school teams, one representing the north and the other the south of the Yarra. Then Collingwood and South Melbourne entered into the field for the first semi-final. Collingwood had finished the season poorly and South were favoured to win by most. The first quarter saw South kicking against the wind, but this did not seem to impede them in what was described as a slow game. South dominated from early on and had a three-goal lead at quarter time. Collingwood did score the first two goals in the second quarter, but were making many mistakes. With a little more focus, they could have started to put some pressure on South Melbourne. At half-time, South led 4 goals 7 to 2 goals 3. The third quarter saw Collingwood start well, but Dick Lee missed his shot at goal, and then Charlie Panham hit the post. South then took control of the game by slowing the movement down. South were also more efficient in their forward line. The three-quarter time score saw South well in control with the score 7 goals 7 to Collingwood's 3-10. The final quarter saw South continue their command of the game, even though Collingwood managed to score three more goals, they could only watch as South scored five goals of their own and completely took the game away from Collingwood. 12 goals, 10, 82, to Collingwood, 6 goals, 12, 48. According to several match reports, Collingwood had played poorly. South did what they needed to win, but it was felt that South would have to improve to win the Premiership. However, they had made it into the final and they would have a week's rest as the second semi-final would be held the following weekend. Carlton had some challenges with its playing list. 
Their captain, Fred Elliott and Jim Marchbank had been suspended after a spiteful game against South Melbourne in the first sectional round. Jim Flynn, captain of Carlton's first premiership team in 1906, had retired during the season to focus on running a pub up in St James, about 240 kilometres north of Melbourne on the Albury Railway line. And Mick Grace had left after round seven to play for Brighton. But when Frank Worrell put the call out to his former champions, they returned to help the club. Mick Grace kicked three goals against Essendon in the second of the sectional games and Flynn was back for the finals. Such was the respect for Jim Flynn, the players immediately voted him captain at the instigation of vice-captain Norm Clark. Flynn had been playing some football up at St James, so was not completely out of form. St Kilda took Carlton on in the second semi-final on Saturday the 14th of September. After two games between the clubs during the season, it was one win each. St Kilda had started the season in a rush and had fallen away in the second half of the year, while Carlton, having lost the first game of the year to the Saints, had been the dominant team for the season and were favoured to win the semi-final. There was more than 26,100 people at the MCG on a warm 21 degree afternoon. Carlton were first onto the ground and in fact lined up and cheered the Saints as they came out to honour them for making the finals for the first time. The Saints returned the cheer in what seems to have been a good-spirited start to the day. The start of the match saw Carlton on fire as Mick Grace kicked a goal within the first minute of play. Carlton were giving St Kilda a different type of welcome to finals football now. Players were finding the ground hard and slippery and there were many falls. Richard Harris scored the Blues' second goal as Carlton maintained a sustained attack. The ball was again in the Carlton forward line and St Kilda's Patrick O'Connor tried to clear the ball but it was marked by Carlton's Fred Jinks, who passed it on to Frank Silver Kane, who finished off with another Blues goal. Kane's nickname Silver was due to his white hair, and he was a popular player with the supporters, with numerous nicknames, some including the White Pearl, the Silver King, and more. Punch reported on a rumour that when Frank Kane went bird shooting in the country, he would carry his football, and got more kills to his credit by knocking them over with long kicks than three other crack shots could do with their guns. Believe it or not. The Saints finally got a run of play together with a nice series of marks and David McNamara got the Saints first goal. The quarter time scores had Carlton in a strong position, four goals two to St Kilda's one goal. The second quarter saw Carlton start quickly again and in a short time they had two more goals thanks to Harvey Kelly and Mick Grace. Carlton were making most of the attacking but they were not converting accurately after their initial two goals. The Saints made the most of one of their forward pushes when David McNamara scored his and the team's second goal, but the Blues really began to show their class with three more goals before half-time. The long break had Carlton on nine goals 5-59 to St Kilda, two goals 2-14. It was a tough welcome to finals football for St Kilda. The second half saw more of the same, albeit with both sides showing some inaccuracy in front of goals. The result was never in doubt, and the final score was Carlton, 13 goals 13-91, to St Kilda, 4 goals 11-35. Carlton had shown why they had finished two games clear in the ladder, and St Kilda had the experience of playing in a final, and a demonstration of the standard required if they were to compete at that level. So the final would be between Carlton and South Melbourne, the teams that had contested a bitter, brutal game at the start of the sectional round, with a number of reports and suspensions. The league actually met until 5am in the morning during the week, dealing with the issues that came out of that game. It was the Blues looking for back-to-back premierships, 
versus South trying to make their mark. Although, not everyone in Melbourne was happy about the enthusiasm shown by spectators for football. One correspondent to The Age, writing in support of Australia setting up conscription and building up defence forces, argued that a form of national service was needed to rescue our growing boys and youths from the condition of muscle atrophying inertia and the physical decadence into which they are sunk. They are growing up a nation of lazy sports spectators, football and cricket barrackers, spineless idlers lacking, lamentably, in manners, discipline and breeding. And this was before radio, television, computer games, the internet or mobile phones. Clearly, young people have been lazy, good-for-nothings for a long time. Because Carlton had the challenge right, they would only have to win the one final to be premiers. If South managed to upset the Blues, the challenge option would be invoked and there would be one more game to decide the premiership. However, Carlton were the favourites and it would be an upset if South could beat them twice. There were those who thought the league would be happy for South to win because an extra game would be more revenue to split between the clubs and to promote the game. While the cricketers wanted the issue decided by one game so the MCG could be top-dressed and prepared for the cricket season. South and Carlton had met three times during the season. One win each during the home and away season. South won their first sectional game, which was noted for its brutality. As in previous years, there were special trains bringing interested spectators, including some idlers with atrophying muscles, from all corners of the state, including Castlemaine, Maldon, Bendigo, Ballarat and, of course, Geelong. The price of admission would again be one shilling entrance and two shillings if you wanted to sit in the grandstand. Having doubled the price three years earlier, the league had held off from any further price increases. In an era before motorcars were common, people came to the ground on foot, in horse cabs, furniture vans bulging with people rather than goods, pony carts and gigs, displaying flags, badges and streamers, and the excitement was building as they got closer to the MCG. And there would be a curtain raiser again this year, featuring a schoolboy team from Sydney, the Fort Street School, who this year would be competing against a team of schoolboys selected from different state schools of Melbourne. This would start at 1.30, with the final between South and Carlton at 3pm. The MCG had been rock hard for the two semi-finals, with many players falling over and skating across the surface. The league had set up a subcommittee in the week before the grand final, who consulted with the government astronomer, on the Friday before the big game. Their advice was that there was no chance of rain before Saturday evening and the MCC curator was advised to flood the ground. Men were to be employed all night to get enough water onto the ground to make it suitable for football and another inspection would be held at 1pm. At that time, the ground was judged as being in a fine condition for football. The umpire for the grand final was Lardy Tuller. The former Collingwood captain who led Collingwood to victory in 1902 and 1903, hence becoming the first and only man to captain a team to a grand final premiership and then also umpire at a grand final. Carlton expressed some disappointment with the decision, maybe because Carlton didn't like anything associated with Collingwood, but the general opinion was that Tullock was a capable and efficient umpire and he would make the game fast. South Melbourne's captain for the game was Bill Dolphin. A fine defender with a great judgment, renowned for his long kicking from fullback. He would claim an unofficial record after sending a place kick from the Princess Park Goal Square to the centre of the ground. After a career of 100 games, he would retire in 1911. One post-career highlight was participating in a choir at the opening ceremony of the Melbourne Olympics in 1956, which would have been a different 
but still thrilling experience compared to playing a VFL Grand Final on the MCG. Carlton's captain was again Jim Flynn, who, as mentioned earlier, had returned from running his hotel in St James to Captain Carlton into the finals, looking to repeat the triumph of 1906. The Blues were eager to get things started, and were out on the ground before the schoolboys game had even finished. With 45,000 spectators, there was a huge roar as South Melbourne entered the ground. The wind was blowing towards the grandstand, or city end, where Carlton was kicking, and the southerners were kicking into the wind at the punt road end. South did most of the attacking in the early part of the game, despite kicking into the wind, but they were not able to convert accurately, having three points on the board before Fred Jings scored Carlton's first point. The Blues scored another point before Carlton's George Malley Johnson got a free kick and passed to Albie Ingle, who had been brought into the team to replace the injured centreman Rod McGregor, who had broken his nose in the closing minutes of the semi-final against St Kilda. Ingle passed to Malley Johnson, who marked and kicked Carlton's opening goal. A roar of approval echoed around the ground. The ball moved back towards South Forward Line, and Richard Casey kicked their first goal. At quarter time, South had the narrowest of leads, one goal four, ten points, to Carlton's, one goal three, nine points. The game between the season's top two teams was living up to expectations. The second quarter started with a flurry of behinds for both teams, as enthusiasm to attack overcame accuracy in front of goal. It was a free kick to Len Mortimer, considered to be one of the most accurate kicks in the game, that saw South get their second goal. A little further into the quarter, and Carlton's Fred Jinks moved the ball onto Frank Silver Kane, who kicked into the Blues forward line. Mick Grace attempted a mark, but it was Alex Bongo Lane who picked the ball up on the run and got Carlton's second goal. Shortly after that score, Carlton's captain, Jim Flynn, put a long kick into the forward line, and George Topping marked and put them a goal in front of South Melbourne. Another push forward by Carlton was repelled, and South's Len Mortimer got his second goal for the quarter, and the scores were levelled at 23 points each. After the ball had moved back and forth, it was Carlton's Fred Jinks again, making the right move to get the ball to George Topping, who took a fine mark and then kicked cleanly to put the Blues back in front. It had been a thrilling half of football, and when the bell rang, Carlton had moved in front 4 goals 6.30 to 3 goals 5.23 points. After the disappointment of two lacklustre semi-finals, the crowd was being shown some of the best football of the season. The temperature was to reach a warmish 23 in the afternoon, and with the first half of exhausting football under their belts, the half-time break was extended to about 25 minutes. Not sure if that was an official decision, but by way of comparison, today's half-time breaks in the AFL are 20 minutes. The third quarter started in a rush, picking up from the pressure football scene in the first half. Carlton's early attack resulted in more behinds, and South were having trouble getting the ball within scoring distance. Then, after the Blues had repelled one attack, South's Bill Moxham drove the ball down into their forward line, and Bill Strang scored South's fourth goal. Bill Strang created something of a dynasty, with one son playing for St Kilda, and two of his boys becoming famous names at Richmond, with Doug and Gordon Strang in Richmond's 1932 Premiership. And then his grandson, Jeff Strang, who played in the 1967 and 69 Premierships, plus an additional premiership with North Adelaide in the Sandform. Bill Strang also had another grandson in the 1967 Richmond Premiership team, John Perry, who was cousin to Jeff Strang. Three generations playing VFL-AFL football is not unknown, but three generations of one family playing grand finals in the VFL is a fair effort. 
For a time, the defence of both teams were holding on, until Albie Ingleman, the replacement sentiment for Carlton, passed to Mick Grace, who got it onto Harvey Kelly, who took an angle shot with his place kick, saw the ball through the goals, which stretched Carlton's lead. The Blues supporters willed their team on with loud cheers, and then George Topping took a good mark from a ball kicked out of the centre. He aimed truly, and the Blues had their sixth goal, giving them more than a two-goal break in a tight game of football. South had the ball moving in their forward line when the bell tolled for three-quarter time. The scores at the final break were Carlton, six goals, 10-46, to South, four goals, 7-31. The Carlton supporters were hoping that the 15-point lead was enough to get them home in the last quarter, and the South Barrackers hoped that their boys had more run left in them and could bridge the gap. They may have taken some hope from the sectional game, where South kicked five goals to one in the last quarter. Perhaps some were hoping for a repeat of that effort. And quickly, after the starting bounce, the ball was in South's forward line, where they had a shot, but it missed. Another attempt to get the ball into scoring range was held back by George Malley Johnson, taking a towering mark in defence. But shortly after, Bill Kerr kicked to Bill Strang, who kicked South's fifth goal and got them within striking range of the Blues. Excitement grew to fever pitch as South moved forward again, with Al Wood passing on to Bill Kerr, who again got the ball to Bill Strang, who scored his third goal. South were on a roll. Could they run over the Blues in the last quarter, like that sectional game? Carlton, however, were not done. They were the reigning premiers, and they had topped the ladder, and they knew how to perform under pressure. They had the ball moving forward, and then they started scoring. But it was only points. George Topping getting a behind from a snap, and then Harvey Kelly, who had started his VFL career with South, scored two behinds for the Blues. Then Martin Gotts was awarded a free kick, but his shot hit the goalpost. A six-point lead for Carlton. It must have been an edge-of-the-seat quarter for those who had seats. As the clock ticked down, Bill Strang had the ball again, and got it to Len Mortimer, who could only score another behind. A goal may have made him the hero of Clarendon Street. Carlton were five points in front. One straight shot would see South take the lead for the first time since early in the second quarter. But it was Carlton moving forward. Frank Silver Kane kicked the ball forward and the bell rang out to finish the game and the season with the Blues Premiers for a second time in a row. Carlton, six goals, 14, 50 points to South Melbourne, six goals, 9, 45. Some considered it the best game in the entire VFL history. Jim Flynn was interviewed after the game, and he thought it must have been a grand game to watch because it had been splendid to play in. He congratulated South, who had played a fine game, maybe with a bit too much low passing. However, it was a much closer game than they had expected. Flynn was also keen to give credit to Frank Worrell. He's a grand judge of the game, and the players take no notice of anyone else. The players get on well together. There's no jealousy, no cliques. But now, after ten years, he was ready to give the game up and his focus was on the hotel at St. James. It was also the end of Mick Grace's time at Carlton. The former Fitzroy player, who had now been a champion footballer at two clubs, he had come back for the finals at Frank Worrell's request, but after two premierships with Fitzroy, and now two with Carlton, it was time to move on. And move on he did, playing one more season with the improving St Kilda. Bill Doffin, the South Melbourne captain, gave his opinions after the game. At the end of the game, they were five points in front of us, but I still think we're the better team. He did concede that some of their forwards were a young lot, and they may have become flurried under pressure, and in the last quarter, 
two or three began to play the man rather than the ball. That night in Carlton, the locals celebrated the victory. Chinese lanterns were lit up with club colours and banners proclaiming Premier's 1907. Troops of boys were parading the streets, letting all comers know that Carlton had won the Premiership again, and in the pubs, the victory was celebrated in a more or less boisterous fashion. So Carlton had the bragging rights for the season, and there were just a few more items of note to finish the year off. South Melbourne celebrated their season with a smoke night at the South Melbourne Town Hall, presided over by their president, Henry Skinner. There were many toasts and a music program was played, and Mr Skinner assured all that more success was pending. The ground and facilities had been improved, and membership was increasing, so a good night was had by all. Carlton, following up their previous visit, travelled again to South Australia to play Norwood, who had won the Sandville Premiership the same day as the Blues had triumphed in Victoria. The South Australian press were quick to talk up the post-season game as the Premiership of Australia. And the locals did go on to claim the mantle of Australian Premiers by defeating the Blues by 5 goals, 13 goals 12 to 8 goals 10. How well prepared were the Carlton boys after their celebrations and the train travel? It's not certain. Perhaps even the strict disciplinarian coach Frank Worrell allowed the Carlton team a little time to enjoy their win over South Melbourne. However, in this game, the Premiership of Australia, it was a win to the South Australian team, Norwood. Back at home, the league was making some significant decisions on the future of the competition. In mid-October, the delegates meeting agreed to admit Melbourne University into the league, after an unsuccessful attempt in the previous year. This would have created an uneven nine-team competition. The following week, on the 24th of October, the league met again and considered applications for admittance from Richmond, Brighton and an amalgamated West Melbourne and North Melbourne. The Ballarat Football Association had also written to the league stating they were prepared to send a team to the metropolis. The Ballarat option was not considered practicable and the focus was on the two association clubs, Richmond finally getting the nod to enable the league to move into 1908 with 10 teams. And, may I say from a personal perspective, letting Richmond into the competition is probably the smartest decision the league has ever made. Perhaps not everyone agrees. A decision like this was not going to be without controversy. Having one of the most successful VFA clubs move into the league was going to cause a reaction. We will explore this further in the next episode as we see how the league's first two expansion clubs fare in their first season, find out if Carlton can be the first team to complete a hat-trick and whether the improving St Kilda or South Melbourne can make their mark. Join me next time to see how season 1908 unfolds in grand final history. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks and I hope you join me next time.